All right. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started. And I think there might be a couple more coming in, but uh, we will open with a word of prayer and then jump into Micah. So who remembers the two prophets we did last week? Obadiah and Joel. What was their main message? Oh dear. <laughs> well, there was a <laughs> there was a message of doom, that's for sure, as there is in almost all of them. I uh, talked about the day of the Lord, uh, the coming day, and that judgment was coming and uh, that Christ would be returning. Uh, he didn't use those words, but that's what he was talking about, what what they were talking about. So tonight we're going to look at Micah, uh, another one of the minor prophets. But let's uh, open with a word of prayer and then we will jump in. Father, I thank you for, again, we say it every week, but I thank you for your word and the truth, Uh, Father, that you have given it to us, uh, that you have enabled us to open it, to read it, to to have it. Father, I pray that uh, we would use it, that we would be more than hearers, but we would be doers. So, Father, tonight, would you open up these words of Micah, your words that you gave him, Uh, Would you uh, allow them to uh, develop within us uh, that we might understand his message, uh, that we might uh, not, that we might leave here different than than we came in, uh, because your truth will transform us. It will grow us, uh, Father, and so that is why we study. So open your word to us. May your Holy Spirit come, fill this room, uh, and move among us. In Jesus' name, amen. And take your Bibles, turn to... Uh, the book of Micah. We're going to be there and around. We're going to jump into Kings a little bit and into Jeremiah a little bit and kind of bounce all over the place. But Micah, we always want to start with uh, kind of the same look. We want to kind of set a historical background for for where we are at with Micah. Uh, we want to talk about who he is, when he was, where he was, uh, and what he was doing, what was going on in the world at that time. So as we look at Micah the man, uh, we really can know, we know more about Micah than we did Obadiah and Joel, um, because he says the word of the Lord given to Micah of Moresheth. Okay, we know that. We didn't know anything about Obadiah and Joel. We didn't, they didn't say Obadiah of, or son of, or from. Here we know that Micah was from Moresheth. Um, Moresheth is in Judah. Uh, in the southern kingdom, if you look in the very back of those notes, I've given you a map. If you remember last week, Obadiah and Joel, they were all the way down at the bottom of the map because Obadiah was talking to uh, the Edomites. And the Edomites were down there in the Arabah, uh, Basra, uh, Petra, down in there where Mount Seir is down at the bottom. Now, Micah is from Morasheth or Morasheth Goth, uh, which is just west of the Salt Sea. I think you can see it there just above Judah. So he actually lived in Judah. Um, and uh, Morasheth is, is really just a small town. Now, what else do we know about Goth? Does anybody remember G-A-T-H or Gath? Philistines. Uh, Gath was a Philistine town. And who lived in Gath? Goliath. 
You remember when David took on, it was Goliath of Gath. And, uh, and so this is where Moresheth is near Gath, um, is where Micah is living. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. Otherwise, he traveled in, a, in the same time uh, that Isaiah did and in basically the same areas because they were speaking both to Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, he may very well have not been a professional prophet. Uh, otherwise, God may have called upon him for such a time as this. And when his message was delivered, he went back to work. There were a lot of things or to whatever he was doing before. Um, we're not told what his uh, profession was. Um, interestingly enough, next week when we talk about Amos, we will look into what his profession was prior to being a prophet. But um, God used Micah at this time to speak to Jerusalem and Samaria. It says there in, in verse 1, uh, During the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Judah, or, or Jerusalem. Now, if you look at the map, Jerusalem is kind of the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. Samaria is the main city in the northern kingdom. Samaria could be considered the capital of, uh, of Israel, the northern kingdom. And uh, so he, in, in chapter 3, verse 5, he speaks to a group of prophets, but kind of stays detached from them. He doesn't consider himself one of the prophets. So it kind of lends us to believe that he just kind of came in, had this message, and then went back. Where Isaiah was a prophet by, by uh, occupation, that's what he did. Um, Micah may not have been uh, at that same level. Uh, chapter 3, verse 8 says that he was filled with the Spirit to deliver this message. So it may just have been a one-time thing. The name Micah uh, means who is like Yahweh, who is like God. Um, and interesting, we'll, we'll bring that, he brings that back up at the end of the book when he asks the question, who is like God. He kind of makes a play on his own name at the end of, of this prophecy. So Micah is uh, from a small town, probably a farming community near Gath, uh, near the Philistines, uh, was not a city boy, uh, but yet he spoke to Jerusalem and Samaria, the two big cities uh, of his day. Now, when did he speak? What was the date? Uh, we are guessing, uh, again, we can put him in about 750 to 700 B.C., this would have been a hundred years after Elijah, a hundred years after Elisha, a hundred years after Obadiah and Joel. So what we looked at last week with Obadiah and Joel, we're now moving forward in time a hundred years uh, to get to where Micah is at. And we know that with relative certainty because this, he tells us, during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, Who's Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah? Kings. Do we know anything else about them? Hezekiah was basically a righteous king. Turn to 2 Kings. Let's just look briefly because they are talked about in 2 Kings. Turn back to the book of 2 Kings chapter 15.
2 Kings 15 verse 32 talks about Jotham. And this would have been the king when Micah was the prophet. Remember we talked last week about the king, kind of the government rule. The prophet tended to be more of the uh, voice of God. The priest would have been the spiritual ruler uh, at the time. Uh, so while Jotham says in, this, in verse 32, in the second year of Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. Uh, so here he is. He was uh, 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. His, mother name was, his mother's name was Jerusha, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. What does that mean? He's a good king. Okay. Now, when you're reading about Judah, the kings of Judah, you will have good kings and you will have bad kings, evil kings. When you read about the kings of Israel, they were all evil. Every one of them. There wasn't a good king in the bunch, uh, which is why they went into captivity hundreds of years before Judah did. Right, right. Um, and so, yes, Jotham was a good king, son of Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's uh, uh, the, the line that they use. Uh, but as Bill said, he did fail to remove the high places. And those high places were the places of worship of false gods. And so when, when a new king would come in, and Uzziah failed to do this as well, they would not, they didn't destroy them. So basically they allowed these false gods to still have a voice among the people. Um, even though they followed God, they were looking after Jehovah, following Yahweh, they still allowed these other temples, high places, places of worship to stand. That always caused problems in the end. Um, the lesson for us is <laughs> always destroy the evil. Don't give it a foothold. Don't allow it to just kind of lurk around, even though it's like, eh, it's not that big a deal. It's not causing any trouble yet, okay? Evil always raises its ugly head. And uh, so Jotham did not destroy the high places of the false gods. And look what happened to his son, Ahaz. Okay, so Jotham, uh, Jotham rested with his fathers. It's a nice way of saying he died was buried with them in the city of David, the city of his father, and Ahaz, his son, succeeded him as king. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign, chapter 16, verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Had his father destroyed those places, he probably would not have found himself there. Uh, which again goes back to as parents, we have a great responsibility in how we raise our children in what we allow them to get involved in and what we encourage them to get involved in and what we encourage them and, and in some ways demand them not to get involved in. 
Uh, Jotham, good king, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but didn't remove the high places. His son got involved in the high places and led Judah down that road um, and took them away from following God. Uh, one generation, that's all it was. I mean, the 16 years was all, was all the difference in, the, in that reign. Um, and so he was an evil king. Uh, it said he sacrificed his son. Uh, he fought constantly with Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, the southern kingdom, northern kingdom did not get along um, especially when both had evil kings. He formed alliances with other nations that did not honor God, uh, that, did, that did not follow God, and he made promises and deals with them. That's always a dangerous thing. Um, when you tie yourself closely to another, whether it be a nation, a business partner, or whatever, uh, a marriage that is not following after God. Uh, the New Testament speaks very clearly. Uh, not to be unequally yoked. And we tend to refer that only in marriage, but it's not only in marriage, it's in all things. Not to be unequally tied together. Uh, I think in the life of, with the life of Christ study, when we talked about the yoke um, and, and how it was to make them move at the same time in the same direction, well, if you're unequally yoked, then you're, you're wanting to pull in the direction of God and the other person's wanting to pull away from the direction of God. And, and so we have to be partnered with those that are moving in the same direction, have the same vision, the same values, the same belief system as our own. To tie ourselves up with anything else is to, to invite disaster um, with it. Ahaz did that. He, he made alliances with, with, foreign con- with, with uh, countries that, that believed in foreign gods, that followed after false gods. Um, then we get Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18. Turn over a couple pages maybe. Uh, 18 chapter 1, or verse 1. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Uh, It is called Nehushtan. Uh, So here we have Hezekiah. Okay, now we're back on the right track. Okay, Ahaz there had a little hiccup in the middle of of ruling, did not follow after, after God. Hezekiah comes back uh, to follow the Lord, uh, and he reigned for 29 years. He removed the high places, uh, the sacred stones. Those were places where they would go and worship, sacrifice. May have been on one of those sacred stones that Ahaz uh, sacrificed Hezekiah's brother. He sacrificed his son. That would have been Hezekiah's brother. I can't help but think that left an impression on Hezekiah that as soon as he became king, destroy him. I'm getting rid of those things. Al. Yes. Well, all of the good kings, all of the good kings of Judah are referred to the son of David because David was the first good king. And so they all followed through that lineage. And so the good kings, the bad kings were never referred to as the son of David. The good kings would have been. 
uh, with that. So yeah, there, that good question. Good question. Um, during his reign, you can read in, in chapter 18, verse 5, uh, it was during his reign in Judah that Israel was taken captive by Assyria uh, after a three-year war. Assyria came in and they were bent on conquest. They were going to consume as much land and other countries as they could. They were the dominant world power of the time, and they had their sights on Israel, a land flowing with milk and honey. It looked good. It had shoreline right to the sea. Assyria would have been more landlocked, Um, and so Israel was prime real estate. And so Assyria came in and overthrew Israel and took Israel into captivity. Uh, They tried... Uh, to also take Judah, to march right on down the north. They tried to lay siege on Jerusalem, and Hezekiah was able to fight them off, um, and Jerusalem was spared. Uh, Again, I can't help but think it's because every king in Israel was evil. And God said, I'm going to raise up another country to come in and teach you a lesson and, and remove you from that place. Hezekiah was a good king. Hezekiah was doing what was right in the eyes of God. He was considered the son of David. And so when they came to besiege Jerusalem, God fought for them. Uh, you can read in 2 Kings chapter 20 that Hezekiah was about to die. Uh, and as he laid on his deathbed, he prayed for healing. He prayed that God, would, that God would heal him, that God would touch him. God answered that prayer and gave him 15 more years. And they were a miserable 15 years. Uh, He'd have been better off if he'd have just died when he did. Uh, So be careful what you ask for uh, sometimes. But yeah, go through. uh, It'd be interesting. Just go through and read 2 Kings and kind of start to put these these all together as to the the prophets, the message that was coming. Um, And so these three kings, good king, bad king, good king, is who uh, Micah was was working with, was, was preaching amongst. Um, Ahaz would have probably had absolutely nothing to do with his message. Uh, would have hated him for it. Um, Isaiah had a lot of trouble with Ahaz, um, as Micah would have as well. The theme of Micah, his main, main message is the kingdom of the living God. Uh, that's what he was preaching. That Micah draws a lot of contrast between God's principles of life and the world's principles of life which as you understand Jotham following after God, establishing God's kingdom, Ahaz coming in and going against everything that God was about, and then Hezekiah coming in and destroying, you can see the contrast just within his life, just within these, uh, was it 15, 30, almost 60 years of these three kings. There is a great contrast uh, between Uh, God's kingdom, God's principles for life, and the world's principles for life. Now, Micah, as as we look at the message that that Micah was delivering, Micah, Amos, and Hosea, those are three minor prophets that all were right together. They're at the same time frame. And so we're going to look at them all together. Next week, we're going to do Amos, and then the, the time after that, I think the time after that is Brigitte. Uh, or Gabrielle, and then uh, after that we will do uh, Hosea. But all of them prophesied at about the same time, and each one focused on a different issue of the day. Uh, 
Now, Amos and Hosea, uh, they were uh, to the northern kingdom. They were prophets to Israel, but the message was basically the same. Uh, Amos looked at political issues in the northern kingdom, and so he went at everything from a political standpoint. Uh, Hosea addressed spiritual issues in the northern kingdom, and ultimately, he was the prophet that was on call by God when Assyria came in and attacked. He was warning them. All of the the, uh, spiritual problems that they were having of what was going to happen, and he was there when Assyria came in and besieged uh, Samaria. And then Michael or Micah addresses the social issues in Judah. Uh, being from a small farming town, he was concerned about the poor. And so a lot of what he is prophesying has to do with the poor. A lot of what he is talking and speaking against are those social issues. Uh, the southern kingdom is, is where he was, was preaching, but he also preached or, or prophesied to the northern kingdom as well. Um, in Samaria. We, we know Samaria from the New Testament to be what? How do we understand like the Samaritan woman, uh, the woman at the well, uh, there was the good Samaritan. Uh, what kind of relationship did, did, did the disciples or Jerusalem have with Samaria in the New Testament? They hated each other. And not a whole lot changed. Why did they hate each other in the New Testament? with the Assyrians, with the Babylonians. So when, when Israel was taken into captivity, when Assyria came in, took Israel cap- captive and dragged them back over to Assyria as slaves, and then years later when Judah was taken captive by Babylon, which was the, then the world power because Babylon had overthrown Assyria, and took them captive, and then at the end of that 70 years of captivity, they all came back to Israel it was those that had intermarried, the, the Israelites that had intermarried with the Babylonians resettled in Samaria. And so they were considered half Jew. Uh, and so the, the full Jew, the Israelite, the Hebrew, uh, would have nothing to do with them. Uh, even to the point to where, if you remember the disciples, they would rather have walked around Samaria than walk through it. Uh, it was not a good place to be. Uh, and uh, they were amazed that Jesus wanted to go through it. They were amazed that he was talking to a woman. Uh, in the midst of that, uh, they were flabbergasted that in his parable of the Good Samaritan, he would chose, choose a Samaritan to be the good guy over the priest, uh, the priest and the Levite, the spiritual leaders of their day. So Samaria was not a good place. Now we're seeing Samaria before uh, as a powerhouse right now, not... Uh, not the despised of the New Testament. Um, but uh, Micah, Amos, and Hosea are all speaking to them uh, as the power center uh, of Israel at that time. So let's kind of walk through. We have uh, kind of three different parts uh, in these. He's got seven chapters. Chapters 1 and 2 talk about an announcement of judgment. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 talk, begin to contrast the kingdoms. And then chapters 6 and 7... Uh, is God's promise of restoration uh, with that. So as we begin reading chapters 1 and 2, we see that there are two classes of people. There's only two. We have three classes. We'll have the rich, the middle class, we have the upper class, middle class, lower class. Uh, 
in Israel at this time, in Judah at this time, there were only two. There were the rich and there were the poor. Um, and that gap was getting greater and greater and greater between the two. Uh, we see that uh, in chapter 2, the wealthy were taking advantage of the poor. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Therefore the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be a time of calamity. In that day men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. So the wealthy were taking advantage of the poor. They were plotting evil. And because they were the wealthy, they were in the power seats. They were able to carry it out. They were pretty much politically, socially doing whatever they wanted. If they wanted a law that enabled them to take someone's land, they made the law. Uh, And no one could stop them. No one was stopping them. Uh, They were doing as they pleased. Uh, It was the whole idea that might makes right was their ethical stance. uh, Because we said so, that's why. That's what made it right. They, uh, They basically were saying whatever we say goes. And they were not considering God's laws at all. Uh, They were just making them up however they wanted. Uh, Things were right if the rich said they were right. And so they were able to do whatever. Uh, And Micah comes on the scene and declares woe on them. Woe is like the biggest woe ever. Uh, This is is big stuff that he's bringing onto them. Whoa, this is bad things. Stop right where you are. Right what you're doing. Bad things are about to come uh, is what he's saying. That word woe carried a lot of meaning, a lot of weight uh, with the people that would hear it. And so he says, woe on you who sit at, at home. You, you lie in your fluffy beds. You lie at night just dreaming of ways to overtake all these people, to gather all of their stuff. Uh, to, and then you go out because you have the power and you do it the next day. Woe to you uh, for thinking like that. The second thing was there are a lot of foreclosures on property and enslavement of the owners. These are the evil plots they came up with. Let's just take their land. Let's just make it so that they are, it is impossible uh, for them to, to, to function. Okay, we're just going to make them poor and poor and poor, and then we'll foreclose, we'll take their land, we'll make them slaves, we'll get richer. Sounds like a great thing if you're rich. God was not pleased with it. He said that the, uh, the hardworking class were being reduced to nothing. Those that were, that were doing all the work within Israel were being reduced to nothing. Um, one of the commentators I was reading said, nothing is harder on a society to, than to make the working class homeless and reduce them to servants. That just spells disaster. Uh, okay, I'm not going to get on a political soapbox. <laughs> Your mind's going the same place mine is. Um, every... I was having a conversation with a man in the, in the lobby this morning when he saw that I was doing Micah. And he said, every politician and civic leader should study the book of Micah. Because it tells how to govern. It tells how to, 
to take care of the poor, or at least it tells you what not to do uh, as much as it tells you what to do. But here's the rich dreaming up ways to get richer and destroying people in the process, um, just running over them and, uh, and making them slaves. And then uh, if that wasn't bad enough, in chapter 3, verse uh, 11, it says, Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Okay, it had hit every avenue, every uh, echelon of society. The, the judges were taking bribes. Again, if you've got the money, you'll get the way. Okay, you, you grease my palm enough, I'll do whatever you want. And that's the way the judges were operating. So the rich just continued to shell out the money to get the things done that they wanted. So the judges always went in their favor. Um, the priests. The priests were uh, teaching for a price. And again, if you pay me, I'll tell you what you want to hear. That was how the priests and the prophets were, were working. Your prophets tell fortunes for money. You pay me enough, I'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. Uh, and that's how they were, that's how they were operating. Um, all the while, all the while claiming Jehovah to be their God. Okay, if I'm God, I'm really mad. Because they are claiming me as their own. They are speaking in my name. They're judging in my name. They are prophesying in my name. And yet they're not saying anything that is truthful that I have declared uh, within my word. And this is not a whole lot different than the world we live in. People claim Christianity, but don't live it. Do you believe in God? Oh, I believe in God. Really? So does Satan. And so here were were people that, that were claiming to follow God, yet their life showed absolutely no evidence of it. Their, their rules showed absolutely no evidence of it. And so we have to be very careful that our lives are lined up. That's why we, that's why we are adamant now about transformed by faith. It's more than just words. It's a changed life. Transformed. Completely different. Caterpillar, butterfly, very little similarities to look at them. But they were at once the exact same animal, exact same creature that, that God has transformed. And so we need to look nothing like our former selves. We're transformed. So if we say we follow God, if we say that we're a Christian, if we, if we say that we're a believer, our life ought to show it. Our life ought to show that transformation, that, that radical difference between what was and what is. God was appalled that they would use his name and then live the way they lived. Um, And he was going to judge them uh, for it. In chapters 3 through 5, we get this contrast to the kingdoms. This is when Micah really begins saying, okay, here's the kingdom of the world, here's the kingdom of God. And he says, let me describe for you the kingdom of the world. And in chapter 3, he goes about doing that. And really, when he is describing this, this kingdom of the world, it's a message of doom. Because to live by this standard, to live this way, the end is doom. The end is death. The end is destruction. And so he, he lays it out. Actually, we can go back to chapter 1, 
verse 7. He says, all her, all her idols, and talking about Samaria, all her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Uh, idolatry. This was a major problem, again, because Jotham did not destroy the high places. He left all the idols right there. He, he wouldn't take that, that big step to speak out and, and use the power that God had given him in a right manner to destroy them, to get rid of the evil, to, to fight against uh, the, the public outcry that was going to come. Sure, it was going to come because there were a lot of people who were getting rich off of these idols, off of these high places, off of these temples. Uh, again, we said the priests were teaching for money. The prophets were telling you what you wanted to hear. If you paid them enough, people were getting rich. You make this right, they're out of a job. And so they would fight uh, on that. And so idolatry was a major problem uh, throughout Hebrew history. Uh, And it started when they conquered the promised land and did not drive out. Remember, God told them to go in and kill everything. Wipe them all out. Every single thing. Don't leave a speck of foreign anything in there. And they didn't do it. And so God said, all right, I'm going to allow that to just kind of simmer there. And from time to time, it's going to raise its ugly head. And you're going to see that there is a difference between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And so he allows evil to exist in our midst to show us the contrast. Uh, And the danger is that idolatry, because he calls it spiritual adultery. He talks about prostitutes um, and oftentimes uh, comparing it to that or or a harlot uh, or a prostitute to where we've sold ourselves uh, to a a foreign God, given ourselves to a foreign God. Um, And the contrast is that you shall have no other gods before me. God said in the law of Moses, the very first one, you shall have no other gods before me. And here, in their midst, they've allowed these gods to, to exist. Um, and so for us today, no other gods before him. And we must do what, whatever we can within our power, within our lifestyle, within our daily living as we go to destroy the evil in the world, to destroy those high places, uh, to, to destroy where, where evil exists. We, we need to fight it. If we just stand back and do nothing, and just allow it to go, we're going to be like Israel. It's going to simmer. And eventually the evil will rise up. And, and I believe that the church has sat quiet for many, many, many years. And we find ourselves now with it all starting to bubble up around us. And asking, what do we do? Why? Where is this? Stand firm. Stand firm. Have no other gods before me. Chapter 2, he says the evil plans. We kind of already talked about that. Woe to those who plan iniquity. Uh, Verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. Do not prophesy. Their prophets say, do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? Uh, There's going to be an attempt to stop the preaching of truth. Uh, there, there may very well come a day when, when we're not allowed to speak truth. Uh, my wife was having a conversation. I don't know who she was talking to. It was in uh, 
Sunday school class this morning. If any of you were in the ladies' Sunday school class, they were going through the, going through the truth project. And uh, she said that in her workplace, she has a coffee cup that has John 3.16 on it. That's her coffee cup in the workplace. She has a necklace with a cross. She has been asked to not use the coffee cup and to not wear the necklace because it could be offensive to some around her. You know where she works? Target. Target. Um, now there's a Muslim lady who works at Target that wears the whole thing. Nothing said to her. There's going to come a day, folks, when truth will not be tolerated. When we take a stand and we're going to be ridiculed, we're going to be. We have to continue to stand. We must continue to stand. Uh, there is evil simmering, looking for ways, and they will attempt to stop the preaching of truth. They will attempt to bury truth. Uh, we have to stand for truth. Um, they will cater only to the religions uh, that will tell them what they want to hear. Uh, and and you'll, they'll find it. They'll find pastors that tell them what they want to hear, uh, that won't stand on truth, that'll water it down. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4 says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Sometimes we do that with the hard passages, with the hard messages. We don't always want to hear the hard stuff. Um, and sometimes we dislike the messenger. I get it everywhere I go. I, I don't preach too many soft sermons. I don't know why, it's just not within me. Uh, usually when I preach, it's going to be a hard thing. Uh, and probably if I preached every week, it wouldn't be hard every week. But given five or six times a year, I tend to gravitate towards the hard message. I had someone tell me the other day that a friend of theirs doesn't come when I preach. Because they know it's going to be a hard message and they want to hear it. I took that as a compliment. I know that probably wasn't meant that way uh, by the person who doesn't come, but... We have to learn the truth. We have to live according to it. We have to do the hard thing. Or evil will overtake. Evil will overtake. If we don't stand. I mean, you look through the whole New Testament. It's talking about this new church that is struggling to get going. And it's a battle. It's a fight. It's fought with prayer it's a battle that's fought on our knees. And, and you know, Paul tells the Ephesians church to, to put on the full armor of God. I mean, those are battle terms. Because we're in a fight. And if we're not willing to stand and fight, then we're going to get run over. And they're not going to think twice about it because they've been dreaming of the iniquity and how to do the evil deed. And then they get up and they have the power to do it and there's no resistance, so let's go. The church needs to stand. We need to stand. We need to fight. There are evil plans. That's the contrast of the kingdom. We have to learn truth and live according to it. 
that we overcome evil with good. Third thing is uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Yes. 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 If you remember Gassan Thomas, uh, uh, pastor, he no longer pastors the church in Baghdad. Uh, I'm not sure where he's at, but he was pastoring the Alliance Church uh, in Baghdad. Six, seven, eight hundred people, I think, uh, that were there. And someone said, will Islam take over the United States? And he, his comment was, if it does, it's your fault um, because we've stood idly by. Um, and so we have to stand. We have to stand. Uh, we can't just go idly by anymore. Uh, we talk about intentional in relationships and service. Uh, that word service, we haven't really unpacked that much uh, here since we've been using it. But that word service is far more than meals on wheels, raking leaves. Uh, it, it goes way beyond that. Um, and so we, we need to take that stand. We have to learn the truth. We have to live according it, according to it. Uh, third thing, uh, mistreatment of the poor. Chapter 3, then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, or you leaders of Israel, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? You who hate good and love evil, you tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Pretty graphic picture. I don't know if that was literal or figurative. Uh, I'm going to go with figurative because <laughs> it's just easier. <laughs> uh, and what he was doing is they were destroying the people. Destroying, I mean, skinning them alive. And, and you know, you, you can use that term of, of you're just, you're, you're ripping them down to the bare bones. You're destroying them. You're, you're, you're leaving them nothing by which to function. And, and so they were mistreating the poor. They haters of good. Treat the people as if they were a cannibalistic meal. They were just devouring them. And everything that was theirs, they were just taking and leaving absolutely nothing for them. When, when I sit down, when I, when I go to Five Guys, anybody ever been to Five Guys in Cranberry? It is the best hamburger in the world. All right, those that have been there are shaking their head, yes. It is the best. Order the little hamburger because the big one, if you just order the regular hamburger, it's two patties. They don't tell you that, but that's what it is, and it's more than you can eat. But if you go and you order the little hamburger, you can get anything on it you want. I sit there, and you can just you can watch them fry it on the back. Everything's just sizzling and popping, and you go in, and they give you peanuts, and you can eat peanuts. If you've got peanut allergies, you can't go there. Um, I think they wipe everything down with peanut oil. Um, <laughs> And that's what they fry their French fries in, is in peanut oil. Um, so if you've got peanut allergies, sorry. Um, but when I go into Five Guys and my mouth starts watering because I know what's coming, I do not give one thought to the life of the cow. I don't consider where he came from. I don't consider if he was treated fairly on the farm. I don't give one thought about the cow that died to make my hamburger at Five Guys taste the way it does. I don't give one thought to it. I go into Chick-fil-A, I don't give one thought about the chicken. 
I don't know. I don't care where it came from. All I know is it tastes really good. You see, the, the, the rulers in Israel and in Judah didn't care about the people. Didn't give them one thought. They just wanted what the people had. What are you going to do for me? I'm going to take it. I want that. I'm taking it. And then it was a celebration for them. They got richer and richer and richer. And the people got poorer and poorer and poorer. Contrast that. That we have to have a concern for the poor. When we are intentional in relationships and service, we have to be concerned about the poor, about those that, that, that don't have, you know, those that need help, those that, that need the assistance. We need to be taking care of those people because, quite frankly, nobody else is going to. If the church doesn't do it the way the church is designed to do it by the will of God, no one's going to do it correctly. The government's not going to do it correctly. If you've been through the Truth Project, they even question whether the government should be involved in it at all. But it wasn't even in the sphere of government that, that social things were to come out. The government was to govern. The church was to take care of the poor, take care of the, the orphans and the widows. And those were really the ones that were considered poor because they had no man to provide for them. The widow's provision had just died. The orphan's provision had just died or or was gone. And so the church needed to come in and help where there was no provision, where there was no provider. And we, again, have stood by and regulated that to a government agency. Are they doing a good job with it? No, we complain about it, but we have nothing to complain about. We ask them to do it for us. And so again, the contrast is instead of mistreatment of the poor, we need to stand and care for. We need to be intentional in taking care of the poor, in what we are doing, in how we are reaching out. Uh, I was thrilled to death. I don't know if, uh, how many of you know that uh, Bill Opperman, our youth pastor, uh, took a number of kids down to Pittsburgh this morning. They weren't in church. Some people would go, he took the kids out of church. Yes, my daughter was with him. Um, But what they did was they went down to a soup kitchen and fed homeless people breakfast this morning. And then they attended church at Allegheny Center with their youth group. Uh, They went down and they worked in a a very uh, debilitated area, a very poor area of right down by Allegheny Center. If any of you know where that's at, right down Ohio Street near uh, Allegheny General Hospital. And... uh, and they, they did a lot of, of painting of, of things like that this morning before they went to church. I had to drop my daughter off at 6.45 this morning. Um, those are good things. Those are the things we're supposed to be doing. That's what we're, we're, we're to go out of our way, to be intentional in taking care of the poor. And then the fourth thing is the whole dishonest prophets. And we kind of already talked about that. Uh, and God said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to silence you. None of your prophecies are going to come true. I'm going to step in and, and silence you in, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, verse 11 talks about the greed. Uh, again, they felt God was with them because they were experiencing economic gain. Um, nothing bad could come to them. Uh, they were on a roll, and they just kept rolling. 
The result, God says, is that because you have done this, the temple will be destroyed. So I'm just going to do away with it. Uh, I'm going to bring a, a, another country in uh, stronger, and I'm going to wipe you out. It says, Zion, Jerusalem will be nothing more than a plowed field. Uh, now, picture big city. Let's just picture Washington, D.C. Then when God says, I'm going to come in and destroy it, it's not that he's going to leave ruins. Everything is going to be wiped clean, and it will look like a plowed field. Now, that means all buildings are gone, rocks are moved. I mean, now it looks like a farmer's ready to plant. That's devastation. That's God's judgment coming in for all of the greed, all of the covetousness, all of the mistreatment of the poor. Uh, that is coming. Um, I remember driving, you know, when you're away from somewhere for a while and you go back, when we go back to Indiana, we'll go back to Fort Wayne, we'll drive through areas that are now huge housing additions, uh, malls, and, and what's the comment that one my dad always said? I remember when that was a farm. Uh, well, now people are going to go back into Jerusalem and go, I remember when that farm was a city. Uh, because God was going to destroy it. God would not, will not allow sin to go forever. Uh, he will come in and judge. Now, there was a happy ending for Micah. Uh, the southern kingdom apparently listened. If you turn back to Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah 26, verse 16. Uh, okay, Micah is around 750. Uh, around 440, 430 is when uh, Judah, so 300 years, uh, well, 100 years after Jeremiah. I'm sorry, I jumped too far ahead. Um, 580. So from 750 to 580 is about 200 years, okay, give or take. Uh, 200 years later, Jeremiah is the prophet on the scene. And in Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 6, verse 16, he says, Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man should not be sentenced to death. He has spoken, they're talking about Jeremiah, should not be sentenced to death. He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be a plowed will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent so they did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? We are about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. 200 years later, Hezekiah, or, uh, Micah's message still rang true. Apparently, Hezekiah had turned back to the Lord from Ahaz, and the Lord then blessed and kept Jerusalem from being turned into a plowed field, at least during Hezekiah's time. Uh, again, we went back through a cycle of good king, bad king, good king, bad king. 200 years later, Jeremiah is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, and now it's going to happen. There was no one that turned um, the nation. And so uh, then 
Babylon comes in and takes them. But apparently his message got through. Uh, and, and at least that generation was saved. Uh, so the kingdom of God, chapters 4 and 5, talk about a message of hope. Um, it talks about in the latter days. And when it says in the latter days, usually it points to either the time of Christ or the time of his second coming uh, is what it's usually looking at. So in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will, will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. And so there are good days coming. He says, if you follow after the Lord, the, 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 the principle of, of God's kingdom is one of hope. It's a message of hope. And that God is going to gather his remnant. He will gather his people and he will protect them. And he will continue to work his will according for them. Chapter 4, verse 1. In the last days, the mountain, of the, Lord's, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. So here God is going to reestablish. Jerusalem was a temple on a hill. Jerusalem was built on a hill. The temple was on the highest point. And God says, in the last days, I'm going to redo that. I'm going to make it right. And so if we stick with God, if we'll continue to live according to the truth, God will always have his remnant. He is always going to be looking out. Um, And he says, the mountain of God will be the center of peace. And then in chapter chapter 5, verse 1, marshal your troops, O city of troops, For a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And of course, here Micah is prophesying that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, And so there is hope in the kingdom of God. Uh, God God had ordained that Jesus be born in Bethlehem. and, And just... Picture that for a moment, the, the likelihood of that happening, okay? Because Mary was from nowhere near Bethlehem. Mary was from, Lazar, from, from Nazareth, which was in the far north of the north kingdom, uh, and Jew, Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. And yet Mary was pregnant in Nazareth, about to give birth, and so God orchestrated it all in calling for a census in her husband, Joseph, to be called back to his hometown of Bethlehem at just the right time for Mary to give birth for Micah's prophecy to be fulfilled, uh, that, the, that the Savior, the Messiah, would be born. Um, is there any detail of our life that is not under the watchful eye of the Creator? Is there any plan that we make that surprises God, that catches him off guard? No. And so here, here's these, these, these evildoers, priests, prophets, kings, judges, who, who were all thinking up plans in their mind, ways to do evil, ways to get rich, ways to overcome, ways to, to build up their own kingdom. And God says, you can go for it. But I've got another plan, another kingdom, by another rule that will overthrow yours.
So we can go with our own life and try to come up with a plan to, to, to live my way, to get my way, to do what I want. Or we can bring our life into alignment with the principles of God, with truth of his kingdom, and have all the blessing that's going to come along with it. Because his is a kingdom of hope, uh, not a kingdom of destruction. Chapter 6 and 7 really zero in on that and I figured I'd get to Micah because his whole message is boiled right down into chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Because God then lays out, Micah lays out what true religion is. The thing that God is most looking for in the people of God. He asks rhetorical questions in chapter 6, verse 6. He said, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Okay, what shall I bring to God? How should I come and worship him? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Because that was the rule. Okay, a burnt offering was a calf a year old, unmarked, unblemished, a perfect calf, the the best of the the, uh, herd, uh, of the livestock that you had. And you brought the best. You brought the the one-year-old calf. And Micah says, should I bring that to God? Would he, is that what he's looking for? Will he be satisfied with just, if I bring the, the, the burnt offering, the sacrifice? Or will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I bring that? Well, who has that? No one has thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? Should I offer my son? Ahaz did, remember? And that could very well be what Micah is referring to. Ahaz offered his firstborn, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. God has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. To act justly. This is the message of Amos that we're going to look at next week. Micah takes Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah and wraps them all up, all of their messages up into these, this one verse. Verse 8. Justice, to treat each other correctly in all situations, whether that turns out good for you or bad for you, whether that puts you on the receiving end or the giving end, it doesn't matter. Justice is justice. To act justly, to treat each other correctly. He says to love mercy. That's the message of Hosea. Mercy is, is not getting the punishment we deserve. Okay, If I show someone mercy, I don't give them the bad thing that they deserve. Okay, Grace is getting the good thing we don't deserve. Mercy is getting the bad thing we don't deserve. Okay, And that's the way God treats us. And so we are to treat others with mercy. And then to walk humbly. That's the message of Isaiah. Humbly before God and men. Uh, and so we, we need to, what do we sacrifice? We sacrifice our attitudes. We sacrifice our character. And we lay it before the altar. And he says, this is your spiritual worship. To no longer be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if we do that, then we will know what God's will is. His good, perfect, and pleasing will. And we'll be able to do it. We'll be able to live it. We won't have to guess. And so sacrifice, yes. 
our attitudes, our character. The book of Micah ends with the best news of all. And it's not a pronouncing of the goodness of God's people, but it's the significance of the very nature of God. Chapter 7, verses 18 and 20, and this is what we'll wrap up with. Who is a God like you? Okay, Micah just used his name here. Okay, he said it at the beginning. These are the, this is the message of Micah, and his name means who is like God. And so kind of in a word play, he throws his name back again at the end. And he says, who is, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. What does God want from us? Justice, mercy, humility. You delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. God is a God of his word. He's a God of truth. And when he promises to take care of the remnant, he will take care of the remnant. When he promises to build his church, he will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so our question tonight is, what team are we on? Not what do we say we're on, but who really, whose game plan are we living by? Are we following the kingdom of God and the message of hope? Or are we following the kingdom and the principles of the world and the message of destruction? Micah was very clear on the outcome. Kingdom of the world, done. God will wipe it out. Kingdom of God, Mercy, peace, forgiveness, hope. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful again for your word, for your truth. Father, that I thank you that not every message is easy, that, that we have to think, that, that we have to uh, examine our own life. Father, as we take communion, took communion this morning, in the time of examination, to, to ask ourselves the hard questions. Father, is there sin in my life? Are there things that I'm overlooking? Father, is your church, is there sin within your church that is hindering us from, from living out your principles, from following you, from accomplishing your will? Father, thank you for the message of hope that we know the outcome. Father, may we never get lax because we know the outcome. May we continue to fight. May we continue to struggle. Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us a peace in the midst of battle. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, Amos, the fig pricker. That was his job. And then he became a prophet. So read the book of Amos at some point this week. Kind of familiarize yourself where we're going because we kind of are going to go through them that fast. I mean, we could spend weeks on each one, but we're doing them all in, in just one week. So uh, kind of read ahead and know where we're going and we'll get through it quicker. All right, have a good week.